0: So to this morning, um, uh, we'd like to, to just dive into the Word of God, and, and I believe it'll be rich, and I believe it'll be good. And I, as I was praying this week about this, this, this day and this service this morning, I felt the Lord leading me to the book of Revelation. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I like the book of Revelation. Well, you, you do too. Cool. Um, and I find that some of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible are from that book. Now, it might freak you out a little bit, too. When I was in fifth grade, I thanked God for the Gideons. Do we have any Gideons in the room today? No? We need to get some Gideons in the room. Um, I thank God for the Gideon Bible Society. Now, if you've ever been to a hotel and you found a Bible in the drawer, that was a Gideons. If you, if you were in elementary school and a group of people came by and handed you a Bible, that was a Gideons. So, the Gideons came to our school and they handed out Bibles. Now, I don't know what the rules are now. I don't know if the schools still allow this or not. I sure hope they do. But in fifth grade, they handed us each a little red New Testament. Now, when I, I was in fifth grade. So, you know, I, I, at that point, I'd read pretty much the whole Bible. I I love the Bible, but I did want to impress my friends who hadn't read the Bible yet. What I should have done is said, let's talk about Jesus. What I did instead was, oh, come on, guys. Let me show you some cool stuff. Turn to the back of the book. And I I had them all turn to the book of Revelation. I'm like, there's some creatures here that will freak you out, you know? Look at this one. He's got a scorpion stinger, but he's got hair like a woman, and he's got a lot, you know. And uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Needless to say, I don't think they got a lot out of the book of Revelation at that point. In fact, you know, if you ever read the beginning of the book, it says it's the revelation of Jesus. Boy, that's a big key. It's the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus, which he gave to his bondservant, John, to, to share with these other bondservants. So the book of Revelation wasn't written for unbelievers as much as it was for believers. Unbelievers will be blessed by it because the scripture says, blessed is everyone who reads this book, blessed is everyone who understands it and hears it. Uh, but primarily it was written to, to servants of God, and it was written to the, to the people of God and there is a whole bunch of understanding that you need from him before you can even begin to get anything out of it. It is a mystery in many ways, but when we see the word mystery" in the Bible that doesn 't mean something that you 'll never know. it means something that God has to reveal, and He is a revealer of mysteries. thank god today i 'm not going to get too far into the plagues and, the, and all that what i 'd like to spend our portion of our time today talking about is, is, a, is a glimpse of heaven from somebody that went there, and that's the Apostle John. The glimpse of heaven as, given by, as, as a revelation given by Jesus himself and the reason I believe that that's important is because I do believe that there are things in heaven which we will only experience when we've laid this physical mortal body down. But there are parts of heaven which are meant to be part of the redeemed life. There are things in heaven which we're meant to grab onto and meant to pursue on this earth. So uh, let me put it this way. You know, the scripture talks about you, you're redeemed, right? but he also talks about the day of the fullness of our redemption being when Jesus returns and we receive a new body. You've been adopted into the family of God, haven't you? You The Bible says now we are the children of God. We've received a spirit of adoption. We're no longer slaves, but we've received a spirit of adoption which cries out, Abba, Father. I've received adoption by, by the Father himself, and the Holy Spirit is my pledge of adoption. But the Bible tells me that the fullness, the completion of my adoption, it isn't complete until I see him face to face and I'm changed to look like him. So we have, I'm redeemed, and yet there's fullness of redemption to come. I'm adopted, and yet there's a completion of my adoption. I am uh, with the Lord, and yet the Bible says right now, as long as we're in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, that's the same Apostle Paul that exhorts them over and over again to abide in him, to, 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 to uh, that, that, that the Lord stood with me, the Lord is with us, you know. This is the, the, the same Jesus that said, I'm Emmanuel, God with you, God with us. So, when the Scripture says, if as long as we're in this body, he's, you know, he says, I, I long for us to lay down this body, this earthly tent, Because as long as we're in this body, we are clothed with the mortal and we can't be clothed with the immortal. He says, as long as we're in this body, we're absent from the Lord. So you understand that God is with us and his spirit is in you. And yet there is a day when you will see him face to face and you will know as you are known. And the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, it's when the perfect becomes perfect. And we will see, not right now, we see as though through a glass dimly, but then we will see clearly face to face. We'll know as we're known. And, And so there is a coming day when there'll be a completion of all these things. So you see that in this redeemed life, you get a taste of that right now. I'm not separated from God anymore. He's with me. And yet there'll be a day when I don't feel in any way absent with him. Because the, in that same scripture where Paul said that about the, laying our earthly body down, he says, we're, right now we're absent from the Lord. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. What he's saying is that in order for you to know and to, and to know the presence of God and to experience his presence, we have to experience it by faith because you can't see Jesus right now, can you? You can't see Jesus right now. You're not seeing with your physical eyes what you're seeing as a pulpit, what you're seeing as a screen, what you're seeing is me, but you are not physically seeing Jesus. You're not sensing with all your senses, but you know he's here by faith. Peter said, though you have not yet seen him yet, you love him. We know him. We're with him. He's with us all the time. There's not a person in the room that would say, well, Jesus isn't with me. I don't know Jesus yet. No, you know him. He's been with us. He is with us. And yet there'll be a day when every sense, every everything in your body, every sense that you have will know he's right there. There'll be a day where you can see him As the old hymn says, uh, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. There'll be a day where what you see by faith, you'll actually see with your eyes. That'll be a beautiful day, won't it? So what we need to recognize is that there are things in heaven which we receive a portion of on earth by his grace and by his gift. And so we receive his presence and boy, it's more than enough for us. And we receive his life, and we receive all of this, and yet there'll be a day where it's even bigger, it's even better. So right now, we get heaven on earth, but heaven on earth is not as big as it will be when we lay this body down, when the curse is done, when, uh, when the world is, is made new again. Now, many believers need to get their theology right about heaven. First and foremost, if you read the book, it says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And, and in reality, that new earth is very important. Many people don't think of themselves spending eternity on earth. But, uh, and we can have different opinions on this, but the scripture says he will create the new Jerusalem where his bride lives will be on earth. it will be a new one. Won't look like this anymore. It'll look like the Garden of Eden, I imagine. And the Garden of Eden, I imagine, looked like heaven. So, we have to understand that, you know, when I say I'll live forever in heaven, that's not exactly true. Uh, But the lines between heaven and earth won't be so clear as they are now. The reason heaven and earth are so starkly divided is because earth is groaning. Earth is suffering because of our decisions. Because Adam sinned, earth is suffering. Because we send earth to suffering. And so it's, it's under a curse right now. So things die. Things get old. Things, vegetation doesn't give as much nutrients as it did back in the day. There are things that, that begin to deteriorate. We see entropy. Things get worse. Things deteriorate. And yet, we know that there'll be a day when everything is made new again. That's a cool day. This earth will be rolled up like a scroll, but he'll make the, new, he'll make the earth new again. And, and that's going to be a beautiful thing. So I, I know that sometimes this seems so pie in the sky. And some people don't want to think about it. But I think we need to, to I, you know, if the scripture says, blessed is the one that hears this, blessed is the one that reads this, that there must be something, there must be a whole lot in that book that you need to hear right now, that would encourage you right now, that will bless you for hearing it. So let's dig into it and let's hear a little bit. I want to paint a little picture for you that's, and really I'm not painting, I'm just reading what's already been painted. And we're going we're gonna to just see a little taste of heaven and I want you to see what, what, what of this heaven we are experiencing even right now in a portion. Yes, we're looking forward to the day when we see it in its fullness, but right now I think we get a glimpse of what's most important when we look at heaven. We get a glimpse of what we should be chasing when we see what's in heaven, what's important in heaven. Now, maybe your view of heaven was a little bit like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, hey, oh, I'm going to the river. Oh, tastes like jello. Oh, look at this tree. I can eat. Oh, it's chocolate. You know, and you just kind of, it's just a playground of wonderful things. There's a lot of cool things in heaven. I mean, the streets are paved with gold. There's a gate looks like, like a giant pearl. There's, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. But I, I, have a, I have a feeling that when you get to heaven, you really won't care about the street. You're not going to care about what you think you care about right now. Because when I look at what the people are most excited to do in heaven, they're gathered around the throne. That's the big deal in heaven. We're going to read this. I want to read it in Revelation chapter 7. Now, there are probably three or four at least different versions of eschatology in the room. Eschatology just means the study of the end. There's probably, probably if we polled everybody, you'd have different views of The tribulation, different views of the coming of Jesus, different views of of what this all means. And so uh, today, we're not going to argue about that. And uh, I want you to know that what we're talking about today can fit into all of those. There is a right and there is a wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're not all right. We're not all wrong. And we might all be a little bit right and a little bit wrong, but we'll know when we get there. Um, It's important. I don't think you should just shrug it off like it doesn't matter. It does matter. Right does matter. But uh, today, what we're going to talk about is something I think we can all grasp and something we can all dig into and really receive from. In Revelation chapter 7, uh, we first hear about the 144,000 who are not these guys down the road here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the 144,000 are in fact witnesses from every tribe of Israel and uh, 12,000 from every tribe and they're redeemed and they're they're. Uh, a great part of God's plan for the end. Uh, But uh, we're going to start in verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, so after the 144,000 from every tribe of Israel, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. Or salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if you want to get some of the best worship songs on the planet, they're found in this book. What I love about the songs they sing in heaven is that they're not polluted with all of our, you know, just... uh, The emotions we happen to have when we're writing it or the things that are going on, they're timeless, they're beautiful, they are relevant, and they are entirely focused on Jesus and the Father. They are focused on Him. They're always on this side of the cross. They're never focusing on themselves. They are entirely wrapped up and and, and fully just enthralled with who He is. And what he's done. You'll notice that, that, uh, that things come up like, uh, you know, uh, they're not just talking about what's wonderful now. In fact, many times when they speak to Jesus, they talk about him as the lamb. And many times in their songs, they talk about him as the lamb that was slain. So in heaven, what Jesus did on the cross is still echoing for the rest of eternity. They're still singing about it, and they'll still be singing about it long after this world goes away. It'll still be a big deal that the lamb was slain. Isn't that beautiful? You see a picture of the lamb in heaven. You see that the cross has not lost its power and that his blood is ever-present even to the last chapter of the book. His blood is a central theme. So he says, they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne. Salvation belongs to him. Only God can save and unto the lamb. That's beautiful. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and the four living creatures will freak you out. The four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm not going to do it today, but it would behoove you to go and dig into every one of those words and find out what it means. Because if he deserves it in heaven, he deserves it on earth. And you dig in every one of those words and say, am I I really understanding what blessing means from me to God? Do I understand what it means to give him glory? Do I understand what, I'm, what it says when I ascribe to him wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might? When you begin to dig into that, you see a picture of all that he's worthy of. And you get a picture of if he is that, then this is what he has made me to be. And so it's so beautiful to see that this is what we're giving to God, our praise and our honor and our wisdom and our thanks. It's all his. And so it's beautiful and he's, they say amen in verse 13. He says that one of the elders answered, and it's like, this is just like Jesus answering without anybody asking a question, which would make you feel a little weird at first. The elders answered what John must have been thinking. And he says, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, one thing, like I said, there's, there's pre-trip folks, there's mid-trip folks, post-trip folks. And we can talk about that another time. One thing is for sure. Whoever's in that great tribulation is pretty happy to be out of it. That's right. I would think. They're pretty happy not to still be in tribulation. (laughs) They're out of it, and it says what they've done is they've washed their robes in the blood of Jesus. And as as strange as that sounds, you think if there's blood, it's going to be red. But no, when they wash them in the blood, it comes out white. Oh, beautiful. They've washed their robes. Now, we, right now, I wouldn't say we're in the great tribulation right now. If this is the great tribulation, it's the easiest great tribulation I've ever heard of. <laughs> you can have your opinion about that, but that's the way I feel like, man, it's not near as bad as the Bible painted it. There are those that are in great tribulation right now, not, maybe not be the great tribulation. But we shouldn't forget, there are people on every side of the world that are enduring tribulation for the sake of Jesus. And I believe that all of us, when we get to heaven, whether or not you went through the great tribulation, you will go through the process of being described as somebody that had to wash their robe in the blood of Jesus and came out white. That's all of us. It's the redeemed. John happened to see those that came out of the great tribulation, but we all fit into that. Then he says this. You can imagine what these guys went through. They were greatly persecuted. They they had had a hard time. What it says this. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. This is their reward. This is their reward for not giving up. This is their reward for, for being cleaned in the blood of the Lamb. This is the reward. The reward is they are before the throne of God. The reward is that they serve him day and night in his temple. You go, serving? That doesn't sound like a reward. Oh! If you've ever served in the temple of the Lord, this is the greatest reward. You see, their reward isn't a roller coaster that just is is the best roller coaster they've ever dreamed of. That might be something that you dreamed of on earth being in heaven. But I'll tell you right now, God knows what you really want. And what you really need and some of the things you don't even know and what you really, what your heart craves and what you, what you need so badly, but you don't know you need is him. We were created for him. It's only in him that we find satisfaction. It's only in him that we find true pleasure. It's only in him that we find fullness of joy. These people aren't going to be disappointed. This is the best reward they ever could have received. They're happy. The happiest people in the world are right there because they get to be right there with Jesus. They're before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And listen to this. This is wonderful. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Wow. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He puts his tent over them, the place where he dwells, the dwelling place of his presence, he spreads over them. That is is amazing. Now here, here's the deal. Here's what's amazing about that. That is their reward, and they're going to be so thrilled. But he even says in this life, this is not a new thing. He says, I'll make my tabernacle among you. I will dwell among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will live with you, and I will walk among you. Now, there is a fullness that we'll only really realize when we get to see him in face-to-face. But there is something so big and so real about saying, but he said he would live with me. Right now, I can know his presence. Now, if that is the greatest reward in heaven, why do we treat it like it's second best on earth? Earth. Why would we chase anything else but this? You see, we've been fooled into thinking that there are other things which make us happy. And the only way they sell you those things, as soon as you buy them, they say, you're not as happy as you should be. Now you need to buy this. We've been greatly fooled into thinking there are things that will satisfy us, but there are no things which will satisfy you. There is only him. That's right. you got to go back and read the original owner's manual. I just did that for a couple things this week. When you go back and read the original owner's manual, go, oh, that's what this is for. I don't know how many times as a kid I'd start using one of dad's tools. Now, all of dad's tools were like his great-grandfather's tools. <laughs> the chance of me breaking them was very high. And the cost of me breaking them was very high. My father was not a violent man, but he was a talkative man. There are times where I would have taken a beating over three hours of lecturing about how that was my great-grandfather's tool. (laughs) Know what I'm saying? I would have traded that in. Just spank me, Dad, just quick. Take that. You can use that board over there. I'll take that. At least I can get on with life. <laughs> but, you know, I'd start using a tool, and you'd find out that's not what that tool's for, which is why it didn't work so well. That's why it was it's not working great. It was seeming to do a lousy job. No, my father always said this, too. He said, a poor, it's a poor workman that blames his tools. So I could never say, Dad, this tool is old. Poor workman that blames his tools. Oh, fine, I'm a poor workman, too. He was very encouraging. Let me tell you, my dad was more encouraging than anybody else in my life. So don't think that he was discouraging. He was encouraging, but he wanted to teach me. So often I'd be using a tool and he's like, that's not what that thing's for. That is not, but well, dad, it's working, you know, because you get to be a certain age and you figured it out, you know, you, you know what's going on. You, you say the people that built this tool did not know that it could be used for this, but I've discovered it. I am the great inventor that's figured it out. He'd say, Well, this is how this tool is supposed to work. And all of a sudden, oh, it works a lot better. But you don't want to admit it. You play it off like, nah, nah, my way was better. But really, your way was leaving you with carpal tunnel and a scratched up table or whatever. So he'd show you, Well, let's go back to what it was originally made for. When you go what to what this tool was made for, suddenly it, it works. It just works. It feels good. It works good. It makes sense. If we were to go back to the original owner's manual of a a human being, what were we originally created for? Fellowship with God. That was our original purpose. That's what we were designed for. So every little part that's in us is designed for that. Every little thing in us, that is what we crave. It's what we long for. And there are things you just can't. Explain away, even by, even by the, the, the smartest evolutionary scientist can not explain why I look at the mountains and I say, wow, that is so beautiful and it fills me with something. It fills me with awe and wonder. What evolutionary purpose does that serve? How does it keep you alive? How does it help you thrive? It doesn't. But I'll tell you what it does. It reminds us of a distant memory of something. It reminds us of home. Because our home is not here. We are citizens of heaven. And even when we look at those mountains, we see his fingerprints. More than home, it reminds us of him. Because the book of Romans said when we looked at his creation, he he let his divine nature and characteristics be known through the things he created. The artist was known through the art. And when we look at it, we see, we can't describe, I can't explain why I find this so amazing. Until you know God. And you say, the reason I find this so amazing is because I see him. I see the artist's fingerprint on that mountain. I see his fingerprint on that sunset. I see the fingerprint on the the clouds. You're seeing him. And you're seeing glimpses of home. Because these are things that I believe you'll see in heaven too. Probably in a grander scale, more beautiful scale. But nevertheless, it's what you'll see. And ultimately, we chase all that stuff. And at the end of the day, our owner's manual, our original purpose is you were created for him. And so what's going to make us most satisfied, what's really going to give us joy, is to be in his presence and a fellowship with him. And King David, I think, captured it more than most people on the planet. If you ever read the Psalms, he says things like, the one thing I ask. There's only one thing I seek, and that's to dwell in your house. That's to spend time in your tabernacle. He says things like, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days anywhere else. He says things like this. He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures everlasting. Did you know pleasure is not a bad thing? We've just been chasing it in the wrong places that there is true pleasure that is only found in his presence. So these people that have been haggard and beat up and worn down and, and, and persecuted and felt like they were so close to being destroyed, have walked into heaven, have walked in with white robes that have been washed in the blood of the lamb. And their biggest reward and their biggest prize is come, you can sit at my throne. Come, you can serve in my temple and I will spread my tabernacle over you. That's what they get. That's the reward of heaven. If you read through the book of Revelation, the central theme of heaven, it's not about the beautiful scenery. It's not about the architecture. You can talk about your mansions all you want, but you're not going to care. What's big about heaven is that he's at the center of it. Yes, and there's one thing you can never describe about heaven, and there's one thing you can never describe about hell, because it's not something you could see or paint. But what really defines heaven and what really defines hell is one thing, the presence of God. Because the worst thing about hell won't be fire. And the worst thing about the hell won't be brimstone. The worst thing about hell is it has none of his presence. And that is the worst thing, to be separated from God. And the best thing about heaven isn't going to be the streets of gold. And the best thing of heaven isn't going to be the crystal sea. And the best thing about heaven isn't going to be all your favorite Bible characters. The best thing about heaven is he's at the middle. And the new Jerusalem needs no sun for he's the light. That's what you're going to love about it. And every day you wake up, you're going to go, whoa, this is what I was made for. Now, why, when he makes himself available to you right now, would you wait till heaven? The fullness of it will be experienced in heaven, but we get him on earth as well. And his spirit is that pledge that we've been adopted. I want to keep reading here in the scripture. He says, I will spread my tabernacle over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Oh, I, f- I feel like, can you just imagine how, how hard it's been on these people and the contrast between how hard, See, as, as, you know, as he's speaking to them right now, As he's speaking to them about what they're going to experience, it's the polar opposite of what they've experienced in that tribulation. He says, they're not going to hunger anymore. They're not going to thirst anymore. The sun will not beat down on them nor any heat. Why? For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's the beauty of heaven. The beauty of heaven is the lamb at the center of the throne. He's the center of the throne. And he's still the shepherd even in heaven. Now, can I ask you, do you have to wait to heaven for Jesus to be your shepherd? He called himself the good shepherd, didn't he? David described the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. He makes me like that, lie down in green pastures. He Leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He goes through all these things that the shepherd does for him, and they sound similar to this. Remember what David said. And, and David, like I said, he's not, a, he's not just talking like a poet. Sometimes, you know, David seems pretty uh, artsy, doesn't he? Some of the things he says. And you think, if you if were just David and you knew nothing about him, you think, oh, that's a kid playing with a harp, and he's just imagining, what if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What if a thousand fell on my side and 10,000 on my right hand? Oh, I'm sure I'd be fine. But he's not, he's a warrior. He's not saying, "What if a thousand were to die next to me?" A thousand have died next to him. He's not saying, "I bet there I bet the valley of the shadow of death would be really scary." He's been through places in his life where he thought he was going to die. He says, "Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you've made me so strong? Because you gave me the mighty men? No, he says, I will fear no evil because you're with me. So the greatest thing I've got going for me is not my strength, is not my army, is not my riches. The greatest thing I've got going for me is you're with me. My shepherd has never left me. And I know that you'll lead me to the water. I know you'll lead me through this stuff. And I know that your rod will beat the attackers away. And I know your staff will keep me on my course and keep me near to you. And that makes me not fear a thing in the world. Now, I think the valley of the shadow of death sounds like the worst place you could ever go. right? I don't think you could describe something that's worse than that. And if in that place he fears no fear, he has no fear. Then is there anything that can come against you or is there anything that you can face which really has the right to fill you with fear anymore? If there is, it could be, may I just suggest, it could be that we don't have a full revelation of how close he is. That he's with me. Because David in the worst place on the planet said I don't fear. This close to death, I fear nothing, for you're with me. The revelation and the awareness of Jesus in our midst, the nearness of Him, would change the world, to change our lives. And the more we live in this planet, the more we are recognizing He's here. Emmanuel, God with us. And though we don't see it as clearly as we will on that day, when we turn this body in and we get a new one, Though there'll be a day where the perfect is perfect and we'll see as we see, we'll know as we know. In this life, you can know him and you can know his presence and you can dwell in his tabernacle and you can live in his temple. And this isn't something that's far off. This is something that's very real. In Revelation chapter 21, by the time we get to Revelation 21, we found... All the judgment is done. All the, all the bad guys have been put away. And what's left? When the war's done, what's left? Right? Yeah, the spoils, that's right. Yeah. What's left? You know, I used to read the Bible for the battle. I told my parents when I was like, three, maybe four, that I wanted to learn to read so I could read the battles. So as soon as I learned to read, I was in like First Kings, Second Kings. I was reading the battles. And I still love to read the battles and see, the, see God come through for His people. But at the end, it's, the battles aren't the point. They're not the journey. They're not the great part. The battles have to happen. But they're all leading to this point. The end of the book, at the end of the world, at the end of life, this is what's left. And I'm not talking about the end of this world. I'm talking about an end of an age altogether where there'll be a new earth and a new heaven created, that he makes all things new. In verse 1 of chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you understand that it's the city that he sees coming down isn't the buildings? The city is the people yeah. because that's the bride. Yeah. Now, the city is coming with it. their dwelling dwelling places coming with it, but it's the people he sees coming down. Yeah. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, yeah. and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. I'm sorry, I forgot there are seven bowls left. He says, came and spoke with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I won't go any further there, but that's a wonderful sentence. Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's your introduction right theres we're the bride. It's cool, you could be the son, but as the church, we're his bride. And he finds us presentable because we've been washed in his blood. Now, all of this and all we've read paints a wonderful picture of what's coming. And I want you to look forward to this. But I also want want us just to focus, just like we've been doing, what's important in heaven? Because what's important in heaven probably is the thing that should be important to us here. Because our home's not here anymore. Do you notice how many times the scripture says this isn't your home anymore? You're not of this world, Jesus said. Jesus said, my disciples and the ones that will come after them are no more part of this world than I am. They're no more of this world than I am. They're no more defined by it. They're no more created by it. They are of a different place. We're strangers here. We're immigrants on earth. And while we walk in this earth and we live on the planet, it's not our home anymore. Our home is heaven. That's our citizenship. It's strange because I, as long as I've been breathing life, I have never been to my homeland. In the, physically, I've never been there. But I get tastes of it all the time in his presence. I'm not saying I get to, I'm I'm snatched up there. No, no, I'm still here. But everything that's great about heaven, you get glimpses of it here. And he doesn't want you to just get a touch of his presence. He wants you to dive into his presence. And I want you to know that the Jesus that walked the earth full of joy and had gladness, the oil of gladness above his brethren, he was the one who said, I'm always with my father. And we're always communicating. So, what, what filled him with the most joy and gladness was to be in the f- presence of the Father and to do his will. And so, I want you to know that what's most important in life is not what everyone says is most important. If Jesus is the center of heaven, he should be the center of our existence, the very core. And so, you know what? The reason everything in heaven works is because he's in the middle of it, he's the hub. Everything has to do with the Father and the Son. Everything has to do with God. Everything points back to that throne. Everything is about Him. So everything is beautiful because He's beautiful. Like I said, the Bible says there, will be, there won't be any sun in the sky for all the light comes from Him. So that place is permeated with Him. Now, I'm going to tell you something that is very simple, and yet it spends, you can spend the rest of your life really getting it, and that's this. The only way your life will ever make sense, will ever find joy, satisfaction, or will ever really seem to work is when he's the center of it all. Now, I know you've been hearing that since you got born again, but it's easy to forget. It's easy to get busy. Now, if he's the center, it's not just like, "Oh, I'm gonna point up to heaven when I hit a grand slam. I'm gonna, you know, thank him at the Grammys." Him being the center is not just you at some point saying, "I did it for him." If he's at the middle, he's the reason you do everything. He's the reason you do anything, and if he can't be the reason, it's not worth doing. You say, "Well, does that mean I can ride the roller coaster at West Ed?" Because I can't say I was riding the roller coaster for Jesus. You know what? I'm sure he wants you to have a good time. Ride the roller coaster. Love Jesus while you're doing it. Right? But if you make your life about the roller coaster, something's broken. You know, some people get so freaked out when they hear this. They go, i got to live like a monk now. You know, the Lord wants you to enjoy things. But he doesn't want things to to really capture you. He doesn't want you to be captured by things or or really just too in love with them at all. In fact, they're not worthy of your love. You say, I love hockey, but don't really love hockey. You can like hockey a whole lot. Don't fall in love with it. It will not love you back. It won't. Just when you start to love it the most, they'll go on strike. (laughs) It's not worth it. These things are fine, but they're not worthy of your love, and they're not worthy of your energy, for you spend all your energy for it. So, you know, these things are cool. These things are wonderful, but they're not it. When you know it's it, you know Jesus. That's, then that's the reason you take your job. If you moved to a different place to take a job because you needed the money, I think you made the wrong decision. It seems like the obvious decision, but it's not. you made that decision based on money. And Jesus said, if you would seek the kingdom, I'll make sure you got all this stuff. I'll take care of your job. I'll make sure you set up. You make your decision based on me. He's the hub. So is the Lord sending me to Lloyd Minster? If so, Why? And I will take whatever job he gives me to take. I will take the job he puts me in. And I will glorify him in the job. And you know what? He'll use that job as your mission field. He'll use it as a source of supply. He'll use it. He'll, you know, he said to the Israelites, I will bless you in the land I'm giving you. So wherever he places you, that's where his blessing will be. You just stay there. No matter if it gets difficult or hard or people trying to pull you, you stay where he tells you to be. But if you did it because of him, you made the right choice. That's the only way life's going to click. Everything's going to have a sour aftertaste. If you're doing it for any other reason, then he is the middle of it. He's the center of it. Your relationships will finally make sense. They won't always be pretty. They won't always be nice. Some people will continue to be jerks to you. But you know what? When they're jerks, you can love them with the love of Jesus because that's why you love. Because he loves you. And so suddenly this relationship, it may not work two ways. But you could certainly love them with the love of the Lord. Suddenly, your job makes sense. It may not always be fun, but you know why you're there. The center of heaven is Him. The center of our life should be Him. Your great reward is Him. at the, At the end of the day, you get these cool crowns for some of the things we did on Earth. You know, He says, you know, like those that that are. winning souls, he said, you know, there's there's a crown for these people, those that have loved his appearing, there's a crown, there's a crown of life for those who have laid down their life, but at the end, you know what it says? There's going to be a point where we're in his presence, and we all grab our fancy crowns, and we toss them on the ground, and we just say, you get them all, we don't even care about those things anymore. (laughs) I know your kids. And you talk to them about heaven. They might not get it when you say you're not going to care about those things. We used to talk about. I used to, you know, it used to be a long discussion. People would talk about what does my mansion have? You know what? Like, Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? You think you're really going to be real real impressed with wood and stone or whatever? I don't care what it's made of. You're not going to want to spend a lot of time at home. I don't even know if there are literal mansions like that. You know, I don't know. All I know is you're going to care about one thing, and that's him. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. But he says, he said to the Israelites, I'll make my tabernacle among you. He said in Ezekiel, there'll be a day where I live among you. It says in, in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that that reality is here right now. He is, since we have these promises, he says, that I will dwell among you. I will, dwell, I will live in you and I will walk among you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Yeah. And what does he say? Having this promise, let's cleanse ourselves. Let's get rid of all this stuff that has nothing to do with why we exist. And let's just dive into him. Mm -hmm. Just as the word that Brother Don had about his arms are wide open, step in. Simple as that is. That's what we need. You know, some of you, some of us, we go through these periods of life where our relationship with God becomes either a duty or a hobby. Something we have to make time for, but we really don't have time for. But really, if He's the center, it's all the other stuff that should be on the fringes and on the outside. As a pastor, can I be real with you? As a pastor, one of the greatest challenges as a a minister full-time is that I have to always make sure in my heart that my relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with a paycheck or a job. That I don't read my Bible to get a sermon. That I don't love people because it's my job to love people. I don't make time for people because it's my job. Because if I start thinking like that, all of that stuff will seem like work and it'll lack the very power that it should have, and it'll be a waste of all of our times. Don't ever get to the place where this is just a duty or a habit or even a fun hobby. It's the core, it's the center, it's the root, it is the middle, it's the hub. There is a light in heaven who is the center of everything. The lamb at the center of the throne, at the center of heaven, is the great reward. For those that have gone through such great tribulation and hardship, they will find themselves vindicated, rewarded, and joyful because they found him. And he will be to them everything they need. And do you realize that on this planet, he's everything you need? He's everything you need. And he makes his tabernacle amongst you and over you. And he spreads his covering over you and says, I live in my tent with me. Live in my presence. Live in my love. Live, abide in me, as Jesus said. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Don't you realize this isn't just heaven? This is heaven on earth. Now, heaven on earth is not heaven in heaven, there's not the new earth. We still are dealing with the effects of the curse. But thank God we're redeemed from the curse. And while I look forward to that day where the perfect is perfect, and I lay down this mortal body that's just starting to get old. Just starting. <laughs> while, I, while I look forward to laying this body down. There's nothing that compares to that. That's going to be awesome. Still, my spirit He's the same spirit I'm going to have in heaven. And this spirit knows that whenever I want, I can walk into the throne of God. Hebrews says, let's draw near with confidence into the throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. That's the promise of God. He doesn't say someday in the sweet by and by, you can draw into his throne. It says right now, draw near. Why do we waste our time? you know Isaiah says why are you spending all your money on things that will never feed you why are you spending all your cash on something that will never quench your thirst why are you spending on your time on something that will never satisfy you he says seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near and he will come to you he says if anybody will open the door I'm knocking and if any man will open the door I will come in and I will eat with you and you will eat with me. Can you imagine Jesus invited you to dinner and you're too busy watching TV to open the door? Don't be a fool. Open it. Now, every great sermon that everybody else preaches has like seven points that you can take home. I've only just got this one. It's not a key. It's not a Twitter thing. It's just... It's just don't waste your life on anything else. Just make him the center. Just make him the point. You say, Well, is that very practical? It's exceedingly practical. Have you just, as the scripture says, in all your ways acknowledge him? That means everything I do, I say, Why am I doing this? And I inquire of the Lord. Will you go to the Lord and say, Lord, can we be honest? I don't know why I'm at the job I'm at, or I I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, or I don't know why I, you know, I haven't been happy in a long time. Or I've been frustrated with some things, or I feel like something's missing. Well, you'll find it in His presence. And His presence is fullness of joy. It's not that cheap joy that wears off. It's the full thing. Let's chase Him. He's not running. (laughs) Let's chase Him all the same. Stand with me today this morning.